Andre Barnard has played a massive role in the distilling industry in South Africa. For the last seven years, as marketing and training manager for Distillique, Andre has helped train nearly 6,000 people, locally and internationally, and he probably made the biggest contribution to creating a culture of craft distilling in South Africa. My name is Holger Meyer, and this is Drinks World. Welcome to the show, and today, Andre Barnard is back on the show. Andre recently moved to the UK for a, a great opportunity. So I'm very excited to catch up with you, Andre. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me again. So Andre is, was very well known in South African distilling circles as the trainee and marketing manager for Distillique. Um, and now tell us a little bit about where, when you moved and where you are now. Well, I came across on the 13th of uh, uh, January to move to the UK. I'm now uh, working for a company called Jim and Tonic uh, as their production manager slash head distiller. Um, and I'm based in London, uh, which is obviously quite great for me. I'm, I'm really loving it here. Um, but yeah, it was a big move. Um, but it's settling quite nicely, me and my wife. And uh, we're very excited for what the future is going to hold for us. And what triggered this move? It looked like you were owning the distilling in industry in South Africa. <laughs> well, that might be a slight exaggeration, but no, we um, uh, there was a. Uh, actually, there was a lot of things that happened at the same time. I actually um, received a couple of overseas offers in the space of a of a month. Um, at that point in time, I was actually doing um, an installation for Distillique at in uh, Italy. Um, and I actually got a got an offer in Italy to to run a distillery there. Um, at the same time, I was um, on a shortlist for of potential candidates to take over a distillery in, in Northern Ireland. Um, but then I got uh, a call from the guys here, Jim and Tonic, um, and they asked me to if I didn't want to pop over to London, visit uh, just meet with them, tour the operations, see what they're about and so on. Um, so to the shock, I had to inform them that it's not that easy for a South African to just quickly pop over to London just because I had a Sengen visa didn't mean I could get into London as well. Um, so they actually flew out to, to the Netherlands because um, I was doing some work there as well. And we actually had a meeting at, a, at Schiphol um, at the airport. And... Uh, I think it was about a two and a half hour meeting and uh, about an hour later they, they mailed me through an offer as well. Um, so I was in a, in a very lucky position that I could actually pick and choose between these three options. Um, and up to that point, it wasn't really an idea. The idea wasn't in my head to come overseas. I mean, in South Africa, things things aren't great let's be honest so everybody kind of has this idea in the back of their heads that if the right opportunity comes around um then then maybe we'll we'll maybe take a chance and we'll maybe do it and i was in this position and i had these three options and as i was mulling it over literally that same day, I got a phone call from our security company in South Africa and to inform me that there was a break-in in my house while we were now in Europe. And that was for me just like the last straw. It was, if there was a sign, ever a sign that you should do something, you've just received it. And uh, I basically, yeah, accepted the order, uh, the offer and the, then everything started. 
Yeah, still early days, I guess, for you. But uh, what what is it? What does it look like working in in the UK compared to South Africa? A lot of it is the same. Um, I mean, let's face it: the, the, the doing that physical work, the distilling, and so forth. I mean, where you, it doesn't matter where you do it; the process is the same. The physical work is the same. Um, what is uh, glaringly different is the actual consumer-based industry, um, from a marketing point of view, from a route to market point of view, from a consumption point of view. Uh, it's it's completely different. Um, from the operations side, you it's a it's a little bit different in the sense that you don't at least the way we operate um i can't speak just to the industry as a whole but it's not as simple as just going to a to a shop when you need something um especially being central uh, as we are based in central london um amazon is literally your best friend if you quickly need a part or you need a um, even some ingredients and so forth um it's just ordered online and you receive it within 12 to 24 hours um but it's not a question of jumping in your car and driving down the road and picking something up from, from a local supplier. Um, it's, uh, especially in the distilling industry in the UK, suppliers are few and far between, which is very interesting considering the large number of distilleries here. I mean, currently, um, gin alone, there's 820 um, UK-based gin distilleries. But the support infrastructure for those distilleries are very, very um, limited. There's a couple of companies that supply stills and parts um, and compared to South Africa, grossly overpriced. Um, I mean, ridiculously so. When I got here and I saw what uh, what some of the guys are paying for the stills and the equipment, uh, it's it's just shocking. Um, so from that um, side of the business, it's kind of kind of weird. Um, distribution is uh, is quite easy. Everything here is done. Um, basically by third-party service providers. And there's so many of them that it's very competitively priced, very easy. Um, courier service is much more reliable. It works much better. I mean, we ship very large quantities of product uh, right across the world. Um, uh, yesterday, I was uh, covering... Uh, um, we were helping the guys out at the distribution facility and we were shipping to, I think it was 13 countries just for the orders placed over the weekend. Um, and then that's excluding the, the shipments in the UK itself. Um, so it's very uh, easy to do that type of business, to do online trading and so forth. It's very easy in the UK, but the market's a lot smaller on the online side than it is in South Africa on a percentage basis. Um, now, again, I can't speak to the industry as a whole as yet. I'm very much basing it on uh, on our business and uh, our model is different, completely different. It's, a, it's quite unique in the way we operate. Um, so it might be that our figures are a little bit skewed percentage-wise well, not might be. I think it's pretty safe to say our model, our figures are skewed. But I do get the feeling that most consumers don't really shop online. Um, they did it in in COVID. Although the lockdown wasn't as bad here as it was in South Africa, there was a, a definite trend in COVID to go more online. Um, but otherwise, the biggest um, challenge, or not challenge, but thing that I have to adapt to here is just the how can I put it in a nice way? There's a very lackadaisical approach to controls 
um, in the industry as a whole. Um, it's so easy to get a license. Okay. Um, the distillery, the distillery licenses are a bit more difficult um, because you it's duty unpaid until you actually produce. So, and as revenue services are, they are quite. Um, uh, quite strict on the duties, but still, you uh, your license should, if everything's in place and there's nothing weird happening, take about 45 days. Now, compare that to a year or more in South Africa, it's ridiculous. Uh, rectifiers license, which 90% of the gin distilleries run under in, uh, in the UK, is something that we don't have at all in South Africa, um, but that's specifically now for purchasing in um, a, a base alcohol and then just turning it into gin. Now, you can get that in about a week, um, and you can even get it for a private house. You can run a distillery or a gin distillery in your house, um, which is unheard of in South Africa, for instance. Now, this obviously has led to this massive trend in gins. I mean, 80 million uh, bottles of gin sold last year um, in the UK. Like I said, 820 plus gin distilleries. I don't even know how many brands, but probably two to 3,000 brands. Um, it's, it's incredible. Um, and But that does make the market incredibly competitive as well. You really have to spend money and be original in order to stand out from this competition. Yeah, I saw that you on social media that you posted a, a picture where you were packing some of the parcels and there were some orders for South Africa. Is that expensive to yes. ship to South Africa? Um, if I had to, if I'm talking under correction now, but I think it was about 56 pounds um, for that parcel. So that uh, translates to about a thousand, yeah, thousand one hundred and twenty mm-hmm. rand thereabouts. Um, but that, okay, that was now a free kg uh, parcel. Yeah, so it's. Um, it's it's doable, but it is it is expensive. But I mean, the consumers pay for the for that shipping. Um, in any case, it's not a it's not a cost to us, um, uh, which is why it's actually quite uh, um, pleasant. Or uh, it's a, it's a good feeling that people are actually willing to pay that shipping amount above and beyond the the, the cost of the bottle. Yeah, and tell us a little bit about gin gin and tonic, the the strategy. Uh, well, uh, Jim and Tonic, uh, we define ourselves as a bar to bottle uh, distillery, which is kind of just a description of the journey that the um, that the brand took. It actually started off as a mobile events. Uh, business, uh, basically pop-up gin bars. Um, and they started off with a couple of vans that was modified to, as these pop-up gin bars and they would go to weddings and cricket clubs and that type of thing. Um, and then they did a partnership with uh, a couple of years ago, this now about six years ago, um, they did a partnership with Makata Metropolitano which is the um, flagship site here in Elephant and Castle in London, where we're still operating from. Um, and originally it was just a question of, well, please bring your van and park it permanently inside this food market and s- serve gin and tonics. But then they had already decided at that point that they wanted to start distilling their own uh, product. So they actually built distillery bar. Um, which operates under a rectifier's license and is inside the food market. So um, if you look at some of the pictures I've posted, you might have seen um, that, or even on the website, of course, there's um, just a bar counter and right behind it, there's a store. 
and and that is the physical first distillery. Um, so that's why I start quite early in the mornings, uh, six o'clock in the morning. We start up the still um, because by four o'clock we need to be finished distilling. Everything needs to be clean in out because at five o'clock the bar opens for trade. Um, so you're physically distilling in a working bar, which is quite a, um, a challenge sometimes, especially if there's a power outage or something like that, which, yes, we do actually get power outages in the UK as well. Um, but, yeah, so it started off with the first site. Um, and basically the model is um, sustainable urban gin. That's the tagline of the company as well. So as much as possible, everything we do is has to be sustainable. Every choice we make, every decision we make is based on sustainability first and foremost, which ends up being um, actually more expensive than a lot of what we do. Um, it's not a question of producing the cheapest way we can or packaging the cheapest way we can. Uh, we look at sustainable packaging. We look at organic supply of ethanol. We look at um, sustainable suppliers for our um, botanicals and so forth. So um, cost is not the most important factor in the decision-making process. It's first a sustainability factor. Um, so we, we started off making the product here and part of the concept was that we would actually sell as little as possible of the product in bottles because, again, cutting down on the waste factor, um, cutting down on the carbon footprint of glass, um, manufacture, transport, and obviously with the bottle shortages and so on now worldwide, it's a model that worked really well because we actually distill, uh, put into dispensing systems and then the gin is sent directly to the bars on site. Now, originally that was just a one bar here at Mercato, um, but we partnered with uh, German Craft, which is now actually a, a partner in German Tonic. Um, now, German Craft is a craft brewery that's right on site as well. And together, we've basically expanded our footprint here at Mercato Metropolitano um, to include a 100 and, I think it's 140 square meter or it's still having issues converting from square feet to square meters. But um, yeah, it's about 140, 150 square meter uh, beer garden that we added on. It's the largest beer garden in London. Uh, we expanded to about seven bars now just on this site. And that's where we push through the bulk of our product. So about two years ago, in the middle of COVID, we opened another site in Mayfair. Uh, which is also part of the Makata Metropolitano Group. Um, this is actually an old church, uh, something that would never fly in South Africa. Um, but in the old St. Mark's Church has now also been converted to, to a, a food hall. It's a, quite a historic building in, in Mayfair. And Mayfair is obviously a great area to be. It's um, right in the banking area. It's where all the um, big fashion houses are and so forth. Um, so that's a step up in terms of look and feel. Um, we spent a lot of time and effort in the building of the bars there, both the, the beer bar and the gin bar. Um, and we actually constructed it out of, um, again, following the sustainability footprint. The bars were constructed out of glass bricks, which we made ourselves um, with, or the company, obviously I wasn't here back then, 
um, bro- um, out of broken glass um, from the standard, I mean, with any bar service, glasses break. So the guys just keep all the broken glass and that gets melted down and burned into glass bricks. And that's what they built the altar bar um, out of um, on top of the uh, old church altar. Um, there's also a second bar in the crypt downstairs because the brewery and the distillery is downstairs on the crypt. And that we call the speakeasy bar. Um, so that's quite a challenge, distilling uh, or working and brewing underground, um, but it works. Um, and then we also partnered with the King Lock Hotel um, or King's Lock Hotel um, there in Dalston. Uh, there we also have a brewery and distillery inside the, the hotel. And those are the sites we're operating at the moment. We also have a, a pop-up at, in Brixton, um, at the Brixton Village Market. Uh, but that's one's kind of seasonal, uh, more like a literally a containerized style. It's not a container, but it looks like a container bar um, type look and feel to it. Um, but we're also in the midst of an expansion process. We're opening up a big brewery and distillery slash food court in uh, Vienna. Um, and we're looking at a couple of other sites, which I can't talk about too much uh, right now, but there's a, a lot of new sites and new distilleries in our near to near to long-term future. It looks like you've landed in the middle of a very, very exciting business. No, definitely. It's uh, it's one of the reasons why why I, t- uh, I took this one uh, this offer. It's um, they share a lot of the values that I have and a lot of the ideas that I have in terms of how to do business. Um, I mean, if you remember back to our our first interview a couple of years ago, and um, I mean my classes and so on, I always told the guys that the best way to make money is to sell as much as your product directly to the public, um, which is why tasting rooms, on-site bars, and so on are so important. And if anybody has proven it, um, I mean, this brand has. I mean, over the weekend, I actually got a call from uh, uh, the bar. They urgently needed additional stock um, because they had a very busy Friday and Saturday. And I was just, I'm still getting used to the figures the guys are doing. I mean, they we pushed through 250 liters of gin in one weekend just through the Elephant and Castle site. I mean, that's ridiculous figures. Um, it is, uh, it's insane. Um, and I can't really say that the Mayfair site was far behind. So if you're doing those type of volumes direct to the customer, um, then bottle sales is just gravy. Yeah, it's, it's, it looks like it's negligible. Um, Andre, for South Africans, and I'm sure there's a lot of your clients out there that would be interesting to know, just some some early observations or tips that uh, um, producers in South Africa can learn from you or from what you've learned in the UK. Well, first observations is that what we think the London uh, or the UK gin market is in terms of flavor profiles and so on is not what it is in reality. Um, I was actually quite surprised um, when I got here. And I mean, we've got this concept in South Africa, um, a lot of the gin influencers and people that write about gin and so on, they're still very juniper obsessed. Where in the UK, which is, let's face it, the the world leader in gin and gin production, the juniper is not really a factor. Um, most of the gins I've tasted and have been exposed to here are very low juniper content. Um, so we tend to think of all 
UK-based gins as being in the London dry style, very juniper forward. That is not the case at all. Um, UK market is not as puristic as the South African craft gin market. I think it's basically because your um, UK gin consumer, uh, there's no, let's put it this way, there's no definition or distinction between a craft gin consumer and a gin consumer in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a question of price point. So they don't really care that much if it's a flavored gin or if it's natural botanicals or not. Um, they basically drink what they like. Yeah. And uh, the, whether it's a, a pink gin, pink gin obviously being a very big thing here, um, but whether it's a pink gin made with an artificial colorant or natural colorant, with a pink gin made with a natural flavor, artificial flavor, most of the consumers actually don't care that much. Um, it's very much a younger market in terms of the bulk of the consumption, where your online bottle sales is more your um, older market, especially the on- online is a, is a, a older, and if I say older, I'm talking 35 plus um, a market space. So the, there's a couple of changes or things that are different from South Africa in that sense, because in South Africa, you tend to find it's more the younger consumers that shop online, not the older consumers. Mm. But the UK market, not the case. Um, if you want to get into the UK market, um, on the t- both on trade and off trade, you have to work for a company. Um, the liquor stores, the supermarkets, the bars, the hotels, they do not buy directly from suppliers. Um, not, let's put it this way, the majority do not buy directly from suppliers. You have to partner with a distribution company. And to get listed with a distribution company is not that straightforward. There's a, a lot of whining and dining involved, a lot of um, uh, relationships that need to be built and maintained. Um, also something that I've always told the guys in training that you can't just set up a relationship and leave it. You actually have to maintain that relationship. And here that's very important because there's so much competition, um, not just local competition, import competition as well. It's very important to choose the right distributor and keep them happy. Um, go out of your way. Um, up, yeah, you need to, the, the catch word phrase here is decks. Maybe it wasn't South Africa and I just wasn't aware of it, but you have to get your decks ready, which is basically your presentations. Yeah. Um, you can't go in a half cocked um, for, if you're lucky enough to get a meeting with one of these distributors, you need to have everything in place, your marketing material, your presentations, your show reels, your uh, videos, everything. And you need to give them the tools to market. It's again, I think, and I'm talking out of limited uh, frame of reference now. It's only been a couple of months and I've, I've worked with, I met with a couple of these, um, comp- distributors. Uh, but I think, Gym and Tonics built up good relationships up to now already, so they've already sorted out the wheat from the chaff. But um, it seems that they're a bit more, and I need to be careful what I say now, uh, reliable than some of the companies I've worked with or dealt with in South Africa, where these guys, if they say they'll market your product, they actually do market your product. You're not just a, a listing yeah. on a, a 20-page um uh, font size eight list of uh, products that they stock. They actually do market your product, um, but you have to give them the tools to do that. Uh, the biggest thing you have to keep in mind is that your 
your margins are going to be low in the off trade and on trade because alcohol in the UK is extremely expensive. I mean, your excise tax is eight pounds, five pence per bottle. That's a 700 more bottle at 40%. Um, so that's 160 rand plus excise tax yeah. uh, on, a, on a single bottle of spirits. Now, having said that though, the sales prices are quite high. I mean, and it would, that was probably the most shocking thing for me when I got here and I saw what people actually pay for a bottle of Gordon's um, compared to what we pay for it in South Africa um, or, or beef eater for that matter. I mean, you're talking about in a, in a supermarket, anything from 17 to 27 pounds for a bottle, for a mainstream bottle of gin. Um, no, I mean, that's what 340 to 540 um, uh, rands a bottle. Um, where your craft gins, I mean, for instance, the, our gin and tonic bottles, um, they're in the region of 36 to 39 pounds. Mm-hmm. So the spirits is expensive. Um, but again, people are willing to pay for it. So your your benchmarking, your target market identification, very important here, um, especially if you're a South African brand, because everything here is expensive. Um, one of my clients that actually lives here in the UK, um, he did training with me a couple of years ago back in South Africa, and he actually commented the other day we were discussing the situation here in, the, in London and so on, and he said, "Yeah, um, London is the one city where you pay twenty pounds a minute just to breathe," um, <laughs> and that's actually what it does feel like sometimes. It's the the city is extremely expensive, um, and it's also when you look at your. Um, services for the drinks industry, they are extremely expensive. It's not uncommon here for consultants and so forth to charge £1,500 a day for a consulting. Um, Your branding companies and so forth, you're looking at budgets of 10 to £15,000 just to just for a basic branding exercise so you need to kind of use as uh, as a south african company get as much as possible done on that side to save your cost on this side it's actually something that jim and donic does as a rule we actually employ quite a few south africans um our legal team is in South Africa, our accountants is in South Africa, our graphics designers in Durban. Um, so we, uh, and this is not even before I joined the company, that was already something that they did. And I've noticed that it's actually something that a lot of the companies here do in the UK, in various industries, not just the drinks industry, is that they employ South Africans because uh, they can get good people for uh, considerably less than they would pay for that same person here in the UK. Um, but they say it is important to become come prepared. You can't just come to the UK with the mindset that it'll work like it did in South Africa um, in terms of selling your product and marketing your product. It is more competitive. It's more professional. Um, you can't fly by the seat of your pants. Yeah. Even brands that look like they, they're flying by the seat of their pants and they're keeping it very rustic and so forth, um, they are actually very organized when it comes to their marketing and sales strategies. Yeah, that's very good advice and, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people will appreciate that. Andre, one more thing. Um, if you could give advice to 
the authorities in South Africa, how would you change our Liquor Act in, in five seconds? I can make well, two very big changes very quickly in five seconds. Um, you're not going to like the first one with your, uh, your background in the drinks industry, but um, my first big change would be to put the onus of legal alcohol sales on the liquor stores. Um, I, I cannot understand how in this day and age when we expect traceability at every level of every industry, every restaurant, supermarket, and everybody has to have these cold chain records and food chain records on why we cannot expect the liquor store to have a copy of a SARS registration product approval and liquor license for each product on their shelf. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, that it goes beyond me because the biggest challenge in South Africa for the liquor industry, the manufacturers for control from the government and for um, reducing all the negative aspects of alcohol abuse and so on is the massive amount of illegal alcohol on the shelves and the massive amounts of illegal alcohol being sold into the market space at below excise tax. The moment you put that onus on the liquor store owners, that they need to make sure that the products that they have on their shelves are legal. Otherwise, they'll be criminally prosecuted or lose their licenses at the very least. You're going to, half of those problems are going to disappear. I'm sure of that. Yeah. That's the one thing that needs to change. The other thing is that uh, this whole process of issuing liquor licenses needs to be revamped because it's being implemented in a way that does not make sense. Uh, people don't actually know what they're doing. They, they don't care. I mean, if, uh, if you look in a country like the UK, okay, yes, it's not really fair to compare a first world country to a third world country in, in many aspects, but because people here, they follow the rules. I mean, people actually stop at a stop street and wait until the light is green before they cross. It's kind of weird. Um, but the, <laughs> the people, they stick to the rules um, to a very large extent. And the opportunity for abuse of a system like this that's so open and um, so easy to get licenses on, those options are there. But at least then you have a record of who's actually producing. Where in South Africa, we've got a situation where the, it's so expensive to get a license. It takes so so long that many people just don't couldn't be bothered, and they just start producing alcohol illegally and selling alcohol illegally. If you, and then there's no control. There's no way to monitor them. If you make the process easier. I'm not saying everybody will then get a license and do it the legal way, but a much larger percentage would get the license and do it the right way. Mm. So I think that's the that's the two things: is to make the process easier, and to um, and to shift the burden of control on the sales level, and not not try to nail the distilleries and the producers the whole time because that doesn't work. And oh yeah, of, of course, stop pushing up the excise tax every year. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> that's that serves no purpose. I mean, research has shown multiple in many many countries that increasing um, the tax there is no detriment to um, stopping people from drinking, and that's the excuse they always use. But everybody knows it's just to make money. I mean, the UK. I, I'm still trying to figure out how that works exactly, but I've. It seems like they only adjust their excise tax year every couple of years, um, not on an annual basis. I might be wrong uh, uh, in that, but that's the impression I'm getting from HRMC or HMRC. 
sorry, um, is that they only adjust the duty every couple of years and not every year, which is quite, actually quite refreshing. Yeah, and you didn't mention the the percentage alcohol, the forty percent versus forty three percent, or the seven hundred bo uh, millimeter bottle versus the seven fifty milliliter bottle. Is that a big thing? Uh, from an export point of view, yes. If we were to allow seven hundred ml bottles and allow a lower percentage alcohol, it would make it easier make it easier for South Africans to export. Um, on a tax basis or cost basis, that three percent is not really going to make a difference um, in the price to consumer or the price to produce. Mm. It's negligible. Um, in terms of the consumer, I think. Uh, uh, that people think 3% is not a lot, but you can actually taste the difference um, on 3%. So I think from a consumer point of view, there might be some pushback on your more like mainstream brands that's because it's not going to taste the same. They're not going to get the same kick out of the, the drink. A double won't taste like a double anymore. It'll take more, it'll taste watered down. So there'll be a period of uh, consumer adjustment. Um, and obviously the, there's always that negativity that happens when packaging gets smaller. Um, but the price remains the same. Um, we've all, all noticed that in many of the supermarkets and so on. So I don't really think that's going to be a big change or make a big change, uh, ex except for the fact that it will be easier from um, a supply line point of view for the brands that export. I don't really see that making much of a difference. Yeah, Andre, we wish you well in your new job and uh, in your new country. And we look forward to catching up with you again soon. No, no, definitely. It's uh, I'm learning a lot here, uh, and I would love to to share it with the guys back home. Um, I think there's a lot that we can we can learn from uh, the European countries in terms of where the trends are going and what's what's happening, what might happen in the future. But also, I think there's a lot that they can learn from us. Uh, one thing that I have noticed in, is that in many aspects, uh, the South African craft distillers are ahead. Um, of uh, some of the European and the UK um, distilleries, in, especially in the sense that we make a lot more product from scratch than it happens here. Um, so I think there could be a quite a nice exchange of ideas between the two countries yeah. or areas. Yeah. And where's the best place to follow you on social media? Um, the, well, okay, I'm quite, from a business side, I actually keep my Instagram account, try to keep that just related to, um, to what I'm busy with on the business side of things. Uh, we also started now, uh, with a new, uh, social media campaign through Gem and Tonic itself, where we have, uh, what we call Instagram champions, um, at every branch and also I'll be heading up for production. So we'll be doing quite a lot of posts for both our Facebook and our Instagram on the German Tonic channel. And then, of course, LinkedIn as well. Um, I do quite regular posts on there. I haven't gotten around to writing articles again and so on, but I'll probably be doing that in future. Um, specifically, we're going to be focusing a lot of what we're communicating with people about the, the sustainability aspects of uh, distilleries um, and the lessons we're learning on this journey of becoming fully sustainable. We want to be um, carbon negative in the near future um, and we're experimenting with a whole bunch of things, uh, including hydroponic walls inside our distilleries to grow our own botanicals, alternative energy sources and so on. So a lot of the articles and things I'll be publishing in the near future will be doing and dealing with that specifically. 
Yeah, that's very exciting. Thanks, thanks, Andre, and thanks for joining us so early on a Monday morning. No, it's a pleasure, Olga, and thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to our stories here online. In the show notes, you will also find a link where you can subscribe to become part of our community and be notified when we upload our latest content.